If you have your Bibles, please open to the book of Acts chapter 20. And as you're turning there, Acts is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. While you're turning there, I just want to mention two quick things. One, I know it was shared during our announcements today, uh, but I just want to encourage you again, if you're relatively new to Bridge or you've never been part of our our Bridge in 60 lunch, we are offering that this afternoon right after our service in Classroom 103. Uh, We'd love to be able to get to talk to you, get to know you. Even if you've been here for a while and you've never just had an opportunity to get a free lunch and talk to some of the pastoral staff, we'd love to be able to share with you a little bit and just talk to you about the church. We we do it in 60 minutes. That's what the 60 means. It doesn't mean I talk for 60 minutes and then we eat. It means it's part of the whole package. Within an hour, you should be able to head out. But if you're interested in being a part of that and you didn't sign up, you can still join us in 103. We'd love to have you. The other thing I want to mention before we go into our um, message this morning briefly is... um, A huge thank you to everyone who has participated so far um, with One Day to Feed the World. Last week, we took our special offering for Convoy of Hope, One Day to Feed the World. And as of Thursday afternoon, we've had over $15,000 given towards the work of Convoy of Hope. Isn't that cool? And I believe there's still more that's coming in. We have to wait for other things to clear. And sometimes people are late to the, to the donations and they give them afterwards. Or we do online giving as well. You can still text uh, your amount to 84321 if you want. And just put the amount and convoy in it. Um, you have options if you want to do that. I just want to say thank you. 100% of what we have received for Convoy of Hope goes to Convoy of Hope. I just want to remember that everyone, not, not, excuse me, can't talk. Um, I hope everyone remembers that that we don't keep any of that. It comes to the church. It's not like we take like our finder's fee or anything like that and give the rest to Convoy of Hope. 100% goes to Convoy, and they do what they do with 90% of it. They only have about a 10% admin fee, and that says a lot considering the life and the circumstances that we're in right now. So thank you for being a part of that. I'm really excited to know that even in the midst of all of the message we hear of fear and economy and uncertainty, people are still generous because they know God has been generous unto them. So thank you for being a part of that. We do very much appreciate that. Um, So here we are. We're back in our series of The Church in Motion, Unstoppable, chapters 13 through 28. We are going to be wrapping this up by the end of May. The last Sunday in May is the last Sunday of our series, and we are in chapter 20, which means we have about eight chapters left. So if you do the math, we're going to do more than a chapter per week, and there's a reason for that. Um, but we're excited. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to do what we're going to do after that. The first week of June is Pentecost Sunday. And uh, we move some things around because we want to make sure that that day we are here indoors, that we are able to spend some time talking about the significance of Pentecost Sunday, what it means to be totally filled and submersed in the Holy Spirit. I spoke about being baptized in the Spirit a few weeks ago, but we're going to even be more intentional that week and really teach encourage and give response and opportunity for people that day. Uh, And if you know me, you know, I didn't grow up Pentecostal. Um, I grew up more non-denominational. So my approach to this is a healthy balance of truth with a healthy balance of power. And the two of them have to come together. So you're not going to come in that day and see a fire hose with no fireman. You ever know what I'm talking about? You know, like if someone had a fire hose and they just turned it on full blast and you just let it go, everyone's going to get soaking wet and some people will get hurt when it whacks them in the head. We don't do that. There's the truth of God's word with the power of God's word that have to come together. And that's what I believe when we do that, God can just do supernatural things. So I'm excited about that. Um, 
Yeah, so here we are, Acts chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 7 through 12 in just a moment, and then we're going to talk just for a few moments about this. I feel like this could be a really cool opportunity uh, to see this passage in a different way. Um, Little background here in Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul is on his third missionary journey at this point. Uh, He is with Luke, the one who wrote the book, and he is traveling among with others through Macedonia. He goes through Greece. He goes through Philippi, and he lands in this place called Troas. And he's in Troas, and this is where the picture, or the scripture, I'm sorry, picks up at this point in Acts chapter 20. Verse 7, Luke writes, On the first day of the week we came together to break bread. That means they ate together. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. tell you. You'd be nice, that's all I'm saying. Okay, let's move on. Oh man, I saw it. Okay, anyway, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again, And broke bread, and he ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Amazing story, right? Amazing story. It's not just amazing that they fell asleep while Paul was talking. (laughs) That itself is amazing because he's the apostle Paul who met Jesus on a road and was blinded. I mean, like, come on. I would never have done that. (laughs) Of course I would. The miracle here is that a young boy falls out of a window, three stories, dies. Paul runs down, gets the kid, or the young boy, and he says, don't be alarmed, he's alive. And then he goes back upstairs again, and instead of preaching and teaching until midnight, he talks for the rest of the morning until daylight. That's incredible, isn't it? That's an amazing story. Now, if you've heard this before, maybe you've heard people teach about it from a perspective of the supernatural and the miraculous power of God. God's power is incredible. This clearly is not something that Paul did in his own strength. It was the power of God that raised Eutychus up from the dead. He was dead. He was alive again. Paul goes back up again. And breaking bread doesn't just mean that they ate together, but they also remembered the Lord in their time of communion. It was another form of worship that they had as part of remembering what he did. That alone is an incredible story. But I specifically want to focus on one thing here in this passage that I think is important for us to talk about. And it's in verse 11, where it says, Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. Think about that with me just for a moment. After a tragedy took place, Paul went, there was a miracle, and he went right back to doing what he was doing before. 
He was bringing the gospel to people. He was talking about the power of God, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And he did all of those things. And then Eutychus falls asleep, dies as he falls out the window. He's raised to life, and Paul goes right back to doing what he did before. Would we do that? Just, I mean, it's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer. But I believe the answer to that is no in this world. What we would do if he died and he was raised back to life, the ambulance would show up, right? The paramedics would show up. There'd be lights all over the place. Service would be over. Church would be over. I mean, like we've, we've had kids over the years pull fire alarms in our church, you know, in the middle. I remember years ago before we had our fancy little covers, we had a kid that went up to it and was like, hey, what's this? Hit it. Woo, woo. Everything's going off. Service is over at that point, right? It's like we're not out in the yard, like, worshiping God. It's like we're all kind of like, what are we going to do? Maybe the precious place is going to blow up. Like, this kid was dead. And yet Paul was so focused on making and keeping the main thing, the most important thing, he goes right back upstairs again and continues to teach and talk about God's power and his love for the rest of the evening until daylight. I mean, does that get a hold of your heart when you're thinking about it that way? That in the midst of something that was tragic, that is now celebratory, he goes right back again and he continues to do the whole thing. Why am I saying this? I think there's a church in motion principle here that I think we can learn from just briefly. And it's this. The church in motion keeps Jesus at the center of their lives. The church in motion keeps Jesus in the center of their life. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation, regardless of whatever we face in front of us, the core of who we are is Christ. Our identity is Christ. Our priority is living Christ, teaching Christ, speaking Christ, loving others like Jesus. That doesn't mean our priority has to be standing on a box and evangelizing everyone all the time. It means our life looks like Jesus. In the way we think, we speak, we give, we act, we love. That is the core priority, regardless of what's happening around us. Above all the priorities. Now, why is this so important to remember? Well, we're not going to go, well, we are going to go there in just a minute, in Ephesians chapter 6. But I want you to remember something. There's a battle that's going on in this world. And some of you know this. Many of you have heard this before. But Scripture teaches us in Ephesians 6, verses 12 and 13, that the most significant battles we're ever going to fight in this world are not of this world. The most significant battles that we fight are not in this world. They're they're not of this world. I'm sorry, I'll say it again. The most significant battles we will fight are in the world. They're not of the world. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What is he saying? The struggles that we have in this life are not just physical realm struggles, but they're against rulers. They're against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. We have to be looking with spiritual eyes to recognize that what's happening around us is not just physical. Now, that doesn't mean there's a devil under every rock. You know, people are good at swinging the pendulums to extremes, you know, so they walk outside and their tires flat and they're like, devil did it again. You know, and I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't know their situation. Maybe there's something involved in that. But what I'm saying is there is a definitive, intentional aggression against mankind to separate us from a relationship with God. That is the absolute truth. Read your Bibles and you will see it over and over again from the very beginning 
relationship with God and man was unique. It was complete. It was unhindered. Satan enters the picture, divides it, and now God is putting all the pieces back together again. And one day, Revelation 21 will be spoken where it is complete. And God, again, is in complete, unhindered relationship with man. And that's what we see, a God who continued to live around his people in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, in the Gospels, he walked among his people as physical flesh and blood to now he dwells within his people through his Holy Spirit. And then one day, the shells are gone. We get glorified bodies and we are completely with God, unhindered, just like it always was intended to be in the beginning. And you know what? Satan knows this. And he has a strategy. He has a strategy to destroy your life. He has a strategy to destroy my life. He has a strategy to destroy everyone's life. The goal is to keep you out of relationship with God. The goal is to influence us negatively. negatively. Not so that we don't um, have a, a problem with our standard of living. Okay, His goal is not to negatively influence your standard of living or your, your, um, just your health, or your overall happiness. That's not what his plan is. No, his goal is to steal your joy. His goal is to rob you and I of our joy. Because true joy only comes from one thing and one thing alone. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy, look, in your what? Presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Some people say, and one translation says, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. Right? Some of you know that. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. For Satan to rob us of our joy, of our confidence, he needs to separate us from the one who gives it to us. Because knowing God is the greatest place where we can experience true joy. So he's not about in just taking our happiness and our health and our standard of living or anything that we like in this world. He is very attuned to the fact that introducing things into our life in the physical realm, because we're still physical, we still have flesh, we're still sinful people without Jesus Christ, those things can distract us so that they become the priority and therefore we become upset or angry with God sometimes because things don't work out the way that we want them to or because we start loving something more than we love God. He knows those things are alluring to us, but his goal isn't just to take things from us. His goal is to introduce things into our lives so that we willfully choose to walk away from presence, being in the presence of God. So, How does he do this? And what does this have to do with this passage in Acts chapter 20? I'm glad you asked. Satan tries to corrupt our relationship with Jesus all the time. And he knows you better than you know yourself. And the way he does it, I think, is a little insight that we get from this passage in Acts 20. He does it through windows. Let me explain. Windows in themselves are not bad, right? I mean, I live in a house with windows, I'm glad I live in a house with windows. I remember um, just recently, within the last uh, year and a half, uh, SpaceX, some of you know the SpaceX company, they, they sent four non-astronauts, just civilians, into space through the Inspiration4. That was the name of the crew that went up. And they went in their dragon capsule, whatever they called it. And the coolest thing they talked about, okay, we're going to circumnavigate. No, that's, that's, that's um, they're going to orbit. Circumnavigate's... Uh, what, what ships do. Uh, they, they were going to orbit the earth for three days. These four civilians. 
And they showed a picture of the capsule, and they have this video that's online. It's really cool if you wanted to see it, how they talk about the cupola. And the cupola was this big dome of glass on the side of the ship. And they opened up this, this, this hatch, and they moved it to the side, and they could go up into this cupola, and they could just look at space and look at the earth as they orbited around the earth. It was a window, and it was beautiful. And you could just see their faces the first time they saw it. It was absolutely incredible. Windows are not bad things. They give us insight into what's happening around us. When I was a kid and I would go on, on airplanes, I always wanted to sit next to the window because I wanted to see the tiny little matchbox cars on the ground when I would fly. You know what I'm talking about? They're not really tiny. They just look tiny. But it was fascinating to see what was happening. So they give us a broader perspective. Windows in themselves are not bad. But here's where they can become dangerous. They can become dangerous if it draws us away from currently who we are. And instead of focusing on knowing God, we focus on the window and what's outside the window. You see... Eutychus fell out of a window that led to death. I believe this morning that there are all kinds of windows that Satan proposes for us to look through, to get close to, to get further away from Jesus, if you can, if you will, until hopefully enough focus on us, we fall out the window, and we ultimately go to our death, figuratively speaking. This morning, I want to talk to you about windows, So I brought a window. It's a window, right? I think it is, anyway. I want to give you six examples of windows that I think we need to be careful of. Now, there are hundreds of examples of windows. But I want to just, if you can ride this out with me for just a few moments, my purpose of this is to give you examples of how though God wants us to be in close relationship with him and we can be close to him, just like Jesus was in that upper room, the people that were close to him, they weren't by the window. They were close and they were paying attention to what he was doing. You know, Eutychus was falling asleep on the the window. Now, he was a young boy, and I always kind of equate that as like, that's like the pastor's kid that wants to know when mom and dad are going home (laughs) after church, you know? I'm still at church. I'm sitting there on my electronic device waiting for my parents to go home. Like, that's what I kind of felt like was probably going on there. But he was far away from what was happening. He wasn't in the front. He wasn't paying attention. There are things, windows, that if we get too close and we look at them the wrong way, we'll take our eyes off of Jesus and we will separate ourselves from relationship with him and start taking in things that are not of God. So let me give you a few examples of what they mean and what I'm talking about, and hopefully it'll make sense. So let's look at the first window this morning. We have the window of love. Okay, now if you notice, love is in quotes. And there's a reason why love is in quotes. Because there is true love that God gives us. And then there is counterfeit love that the enemy offers us in this world. If you ask different people different questions about love this morning, what you will find is, depending on who you ask, they will give you a different definition. Just listening to Willard speak about John 14, 6, about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Godly truth comes by knowing what Jesus stands for and what he communicates to us. Worldly definitions are counterfeit. So when I say love in quotes, I mean all of the things that don't represent godly love. Lust versus love. Selfishness versus selflessness. You see what I mean? 
There's a difference in that. But it even goes a little bit deeper, and let me explain. When I initially wrote this one, here's what I thought of. I thought about the concept of missionary dating. Have you ever heard of this concept? Some of you have heard of missionary dating. That doesn't mean you date a missionary, okay? It means consider this situation, and maybe you were one of these people, maybe you are, or maybe you know someone. You're on fire for God. You're growing in your relationship with God. God's speaking to you. You're going to all these events over the years. You're in the word. You're reading. But then all of a sudden, Prince Charming shows up into your life. Or Princess Charmingette. I was going to say Princess Leia, but I'm not going to do that. But the prince and the princess don't know Jesus. Oh, but your heart's pounding 100 miles an hour. And you're just praying and pray, God, I feel this. And we're connected. We have a relationship. We're connected. They get me. I get them. And you know what starts to happen? They start moving towards the window of love and getting further and further away from who? Jesus, right? And you know what happens? They fall out the window. They make decisions they shouldn't make. They cross lines they shouldn't cross. At one point, they turn back and look at their life, and they're like, I was on fire for God one time. And now I don't even know what I believe. Or now it's okay for me to do what I'm doing and say what I'm saying and acting the way that I'm acting because, oh, I love this person. And can I tell you, and I'm just speak this so honestly, young ladies, young men, I don't care if you're single, if you're a teenager, if you're 30s, 40s, 50s, you're dating someone that's not drawing you closer to God, get out of that relationship. I'm telling you, get out of it. Oh, but Paul, I've been praying for them. I don't care. I don't care. Pray for them while you're not dating them and you're not involved with them. How could you ask me to do that? Because it's a window and Satan knows. Satan knows that we're looking for that affirmation. This is a good example. Are you with me? It's a window. We need to be really careful. Moms and dads, you need to be really careful. Oh, well, they're a good person. You know, they come to church every once in a while. Whatever. Whatever. I was that kid, man. I knew it. I had friends. Just because a kid goes to church, it doesn't mean that they understand God. And it doesn't mean that they're practicing holiness because they go to church. That's silly. And as parents, as adults in this world, like, are we just kind of sit back and let the world tell us like they are telling us, well, your child's 18 years old now. They can do whatever they want. Nonsense. They're 18. They still live at home. They're not going to do whatever they want. Just because they're 18 doesn't mean that they're responsible and they are an adult. It means that they have the ability to go take care of themselves like an adult. Then go do it. But when they're younger, until they get older, talk to them. This isn't about laws and rules, you guys. Like, hear my heart on this. It's about recognizing that being in relationship with Jesus is the most important thing that we could possibly do. And anything that draws us away from that, and this is a very big one in this world, anything that draws us away from him that is false love, our heart connects with because everyone wants to experience love and acceptance, don't they? Okay. Second, another window. Some of you are going, what? Mammon, mammon or materialism. Jesus said in the Gospels that you cannot have two gods. You can either serve God or you can serve mammon. You cannot serve both. And mammon is synonymous with money. It's synonymous with materialism. It's synonymous basically with stuff. Satan uses stuff to get us away from God. He does. He uses things. It can be material wealth, which in itself is not bad. You know, I mean, there's plenty of people in scripture that are very wealthy and God uses that money is amoral, 
which means you can use it to bless people and change the world, or you can use it to destroy the world. So that's not what we're talking about. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Big difference in that. That's why God uses people of means to do supernatural, awesome things that other people can't do. So it's a beautiful thing when God has put those two together and your heart's in the right place and he gives you resources. I'm talking about the person whose heart is bent on things and stuff. They're bent on always wanting to have more, get more, need more. Their idol becomes, how can I do those kinds of things? And sometimes it is overt. It is an actual conscious pursuit of God. I'm sorry, an over, a conscious pursuit of stuff over God. It's overt. You might know people like that. It's like they are just hell-bent on making everything that they want to make for themselves, and there's no other priority other than being this level, this career, this net worth, whatever. And it's very overt, and you can see that people make those priorities. Sometimes it's covert. Sometimes you get sucked into the system when you think you're doing the right thing. Every week when I go to my mailbox, every week I just, I'm reminded just how much the credit card companies love me because I get all these offers. I get the offers. My adult children get the offers. My teenage daughter gets offers for credit cards. I'm like, she can't pay nothing. What are you talking about? She's in school. We love you. We're going to give you blah, blah, blah. I'm like, this is like ridiculous. When I was credentialed, in our fellowship many years ago, I remember I sat down with, our, with the group that interviewed me, and they talked about like priorities and finances and money, and I told them at that point, I mean, I was 14 years in corporate, and I said, um, I've, I've always lived on close to half, as a couple, we've always lived on close to half of what I earned. And, and, I, and I, I just told them that's what I did, and my boss at corporate used to think that was ridiculous. He was like, what? And I said, we always lived on half of it. We drove old cars, we lived in a little house, we... We gave a lot to a lot of people and did what we could. We didn't have to have a standard to think it needs to be a certain way. This is what we did. And I said, so we're, I mean, back then, I'm going back to like my early 30s. We had no debt. We had no anything. We had a mortgage. That's it. But that's everything we owned was debt free. And one of the guys that interviewed me looked at me and he goes, do you know how rare that is to hear for people that want to move into ministry? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I can't tell you the stories of people that have a calling on their life over the years, that God speaks to them in a, in a conference or in a, in a youth event or at a college, and God calls them into something, and then they get out, and then they get this attraction because the world tells them they need this, they can have this, they can finance this, and they start racking up all these financial responsibilities and debt, and they look at themselves at some point and go, now we still hear that still small voice of God calling us, but we're incapable of moving because we're stuck in mammon. And then they have years of process to get out of it so that they can do what God has asked them to do. You with me? Like, this is real life stuff. This is a window. So is stuff bad in itself? No. If it's an idol and it keeps us from fulfilling what God wants us to do, it's a problem. You're going to love this one. Self. The window of self. It's all about me. It's all about me, my thoughts, my plans, my opinions, my definitions, my beliefs, my moral truths, my needs. This life is about taking care of me. I'm looking out for number one. Do you understand that I'm the most important person that's ever walked the face of the earth? Do you understand that when I walk into a room, everyone should be knowing everything about me as opposed to anything about anyone else? And I'm speaking hyperbolically here, but there is a movement that we see in our world that says the number one person that matters in our lives is who? Ourselves. We are the number one person. It's all about me. 
It's about me, my beliefs. It's about me, my preferences. It's about me, my freedoms. This is where it gets really dangerous in the church. And this is probably like when I wrote this one down, my wife and I were talking about it and I started writing more of it down. I went, this is probably the one that hurts me the most over the last couple of years. And I feel like I'm like permanently scarred after walking through the last couple of years watching the larger church who loves Jesus become so stinking selfish because it's about our preferences and our wants and our, we like this, we don't like this, we want this, we don't want, and it's silly. Like I look at all that and I go, where's the church community? Where's the, we walk in a, in a spirit of unity with each other. We walk in a spirit of bondage, not prison bondage, but bonding with each other to recognize if, if my brother is causing, if I'm causing my brother or sister to stumble because of something I'm doing, I'm going to let go of my own freedom for their sake. Because Paul tells us that's what we do according to Jesus' principles and being a follower of Christ. Jesus even said that the, the, the formula for salvation and to walk close to him, he says the one that chooses to save their life will what? Lose it. But the one that chooses to lose their life will find that theirs is saved. That is a lifelong principle and self matters. Henry Blackaby said this about the, the, the window of self. He said, Jesus has the right to interrupt your life. He is Lord. When you accepted him as Lord, you gave him the right to help himself to your life anytime he wants. Think about that. He, you gave him the right to interrupt your life anytime he wants, which means even if what you're saying is not sinful because you are free to participate or do what it is you're doing, if it's causing someone who's close to you to be hurt and to struggle, in the name of the Lord, stop doing it. But self becomes the window. This is what I like. This is my preference. This is what I think is best. And you know what? If you don't like it, that's fine. We don't have to associate with each other. And I look at that and go, we're blind. This is what the church has come to. And I'm not saying this is a bridge thing. I'm saying this is the corporate church. I've talked to so many pastors over the last couple of years, and their hearts have ached as they watch people walk out, or I should say fall out, of the window of self over the last couple of years to say, no, it's about me, me, me. And God said, I'm using this opportunity in the last two years to show you it's about others and it's not about you. Think about that. Isn't this fun? (laughs) Wait, this is even better. Buckle up, friends. Hey, two things you're never supposed to talk about in life, right? Religion, Politics. Well, I'm a pastor, so that one's out. So let's just violate both of them. Okay? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this one, but here's what I want you to know. God calls us to pray for our leaders. He calls us to pray for our rulers. He calls us to pray for our authorities and our government. Right? He calls us to influence all the areas of the world around us, including needing Christian businessmen and Christian businesswomen and government leaders who love Jesus. Like, would anyone, hopefully no one would disagree with that. Those are not bad things. The window becomes a problem when our identity becomes more rooted in this as our solution over God as our solution. That's where the problem becomes. And you could say, well, I don't necessarily know if I believe that or if I think that that's a problem. Here's how you know when it's a problem. When the way that you respond to people around you because of this makes you look less like Jesus, you're falling out of the window. 
hear what I'm saying? This is important. This is important. What do you mean by that? I mean, Jesus wasn't a Republican and he wasn't a Democrat. Now, don't get me wrong. Man, there are some Democrat things that I think are downright stinking sinful and God's going to judge people for the way that they actually vote for some of that stuff, that they give credence for some of the things that they honor and they celebrate. But you know what? Sin is sin. And there's other stuff that goes on in the Republican candidates too. And I'm not saying one's better or another. Actually, I do think one is better than the other. I think Republican's better than Democrat. Okay, I'm just saying that. I'm saying that. I'm not saying, and here's why. Here's why, okay? I'm going to tell you, you're like, I can't believe you're talking about this. Here's why I'm saying that. You're going to get me all upset. Okay, look, if I'm making you upset and you don't like me anymore, you just fell out the window. (laughs) See what I just did there? Do you see what I just did there? I just set you up. I set you up. And now you're going, he really believes. Oh, wait a minute. I just set you up. Because some of you heard me say that and you went, I don't know if I can. Don't fall out the window. You see what I just did there? I hope you saw what I just did there. Everyone's going to go post. Pastor Paul says this. Yeah. This is really important. I really hope you guys understand what I just did. I could feel it in the room when I said what was better. I don't know if people think that. Well, you know, we don't live in a world where people work through their differences. We don't work, live in, and in the church, we don't live in a place in the church where we recognize we're a citizen of heaven over a citizen of the earth. We don't do those things anymore because the world around us shows us polarization is more effective. So let's polarize and divide. And if you've drank that Kool-Aid, and if that's the way that we live and the way that we speak about others, listen, I can speak against things that are immoral and are untrue. And I can look at both I don't even want to say both because we've reduced this to two categories and then you got the independents that don't know what's going on. That's the way that they look at this life. They can't decide, so everyone else. So it's like, you know what? Everyone should be independent in that. But we we polarize everybody and say, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, this is right. But you know what? There's wrong all over the spectrum because we're all sinful people. This is not a bad thing for us to participate in. We need to lead with integrity as followers of Christ. And can I tell you, people that really love Jesus and that are involved in this area, in this venue, pray for them. They have an incredibly difficult job. Incredibly difficult. You hear what I'm saying? I look at some of the men and women who profess knowing Christ, and they try to walk with integrity down this road, and I just think, I don't know if I could ever do that. I don't know how to do that in a world where everyone's telling you what matters most because their moral compass goes back to self, not God. How do you do this? We need God's help and God's provision. So, if you're still with me and you still like me, I got two more. Here's a window. Busyness, okay? Busyness. I'll move this back so you all can see it over here. What am I talking about regarding business? There's nothing wrong with keeping busy. We have things to do. In fact, I've known the, the general adage over the years. I've heard people say, if you really want something to get done, you give it to someone who's what? busy because you know they're going to find a way to do it or maybe you know they run at that pace or that clip or whatever Um, but it becomes a window that you can fall out of when you have so much stuff to do that you have no time for God life is so busy and I have so much to do that I have no time for God or should it be I have so much to do because I have no time for God see the difference there I have so much to do, 
so I don't have time for God, or is I have so much to do because I have no time for God. God does not call us every day to wake up on this planet and run ourselves at a pace that's so ragged, six, seven days a week, so that we always feel absolutely exhausted. We're doing it in the name of Jesus. I would probably challenge that sometimes. There's always a time where we're going to work in seasons where it's going to be more hectic than others. One of the best pieces of advice I ever was given when I went through seminary was one of our professors that said, don't measure balance in days or weeks. Measure balance in months and quarters. Because when you go through a difficult time of training and instruction, you're going to be out of balance for a while for something. But know that you need to come back and have balance. I think it was wise to look at it that way. But busyness is a danger for us, church. That we're always doing and doing and doing. We don't make time for the things that really matter. Maybe this is a window that you willingly fall into. Not be, and it may not even because you know, that you're just out of balance. Maybe you just have a heart for service. You ever think about this? A heart for service. And when there's a need, you're going to meet it. And when there's a need, you're going to meet it. And when there's a need, you're going to meet it. And if you start going down that road, you realize there's too many needs for me to meet and I feel exhausted all the time. Sometimes the people that really fall through this window the most are the people that really love so much and serve so much that they realize that they've given so much to everybody else that they haven't actually had enough time to think about how God wants to pour into them. Make sense? Okay, one more. And remember, these are just six examples. There are others. And I'm sure there's others that you can think of. Here's a window. Offense. Holding on to offense. Scripture is very clear about the dangers of offense. A window that you can fall out of. Well, they shouldn't have said that to me. Some of you are dealing with offense right now because you're still looking at the one above it. (laughs) Just being honest. I don't care. No, I do care. Right? I mean, just be honest. Some of these topics can breed offense if our hearts aren't in the right place. Am I right? They shouldn't have said that to me. Who do they think that they are? Why would they ever do that to me? And maybe it has nothing to do with what you did or you were responsible for. Maybe it was just an imperfect, sinful person being sinful towards you. Not because you deserved it or you did anything wrong. Sometimes we're just victims of things. And the danger in the window of offense is that we fall out that window and we don't realize that offense can lead to deeper things. Offense hurts. It can be a pain that breeds unforgiveness in our heart. And unforgiveness can breed what? Bitterness in our heart. And it closes us off to forgiveness and to understand that the most offendable person or who could have been the most offendable person that ever walked to the face of the earth was Jesus Christ who did nothing, nothing to deserve the punishment he received, church. Nothing. And yet it says he held his tongue and he entrusted his future and his fate to the just judge by not being offendable. Offense is like opening a door in a crack that then gives you all other options to continue to be offended. You may, in the beginning, only be offended by really grave things. But then you become offended by not-so-grave things. And then you start walking around where everything can offend you. Just, just look back at the society we've lived in for the last few years. 
Offense continues to become a focal point. I'm offended by you. You use the wrong word. I'm offended by that. I'm offended by that. I'm offended. I saw something online the other day when someone was posting something and a question about parking spaces, and they were asking a question, and they used the term handicapped. And they got ripped up and down on the post. Who do you think you are? You're not this. You don't love people. You're a jerk. Don't you know that you know, that's, that's an old school term that you shouldn't use? It's called assisted. We call it you know, assisted parking. We don't call it handicapped. And I, and I looked at it, and I'm like, well, it makes sense that that makes more sense to be cautious. But then I went online, and I started searching for parking signs. Everything said handicapped on it. All the descriptions said handicapped. And I'm like, look at all these ridiculously hateful people. And I looked at it and said, listen, is there a better way to say it? Sure. But is there no grace for people that don't really, maybe in that moment, weren't really schooled on that? Or maybe it would be a better thing? We've become so sensitive about every little thing. Why couldn't someone just approach that person and say, listen, just so you know, like there is a little better way to say that, that it doesn't hurt because there's a derogatory term there. It goes back a long time and we could talk about that. Oh, thank you for being gracious towards me as opposed to shaming me and making me feel like I need to apologize to the world because of a legitimate mistake. That's a silly or a simple illustration. But offense goes deep when it comes to your personal practices, when it comes to your homes and your families and words that were sent to you, people that you don't necessarily like being around. You say, like, well, how do you know if you fell out this window? You know what I think is a really great test for this? I love this test. Can you, with the right heart, earnestly and faithfully pray for the person that you have been offended by. And I don't just mean like, God, you know what they did. (laughs) And you're all powerful. Right? Anybody can do that. Bless them in Jesus' name. I'm talking about the kind of offense where you go, My heart hurts for them, Lord, because they hurt me. And maybe they hurt me because they've been hurt. Or maybe they don't know. Or maybe they don't know you. Or maybe I don't know their circumstance. Maybe they didn't have the capacity to do anything different. Instead of holding on to anger and bitterness and rage and unforgiveness, can we pray for the person when they come to mind? Or does our heart get stiff and cold and say, I cannot pray for them. I cannot pray blessings over that person. I can't do it. And if we can't do it, we fell out of the window. And the danger in this is when you fall out of the offense window, Jesus says this, if you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. That's not a comment about salvation, my friends. That is, what he's saying is, forgiveness is a two-way street. I love to use it. It's like a, like a breathing tube, like a snorkel. When you exhale forgiveness you can inhale forgiveness from God because we all are necessary. We all need forgiveness throughout our lives because we sin consistently. We continue to sin at different points in our life. And for us to receive true forgiveness, we have to be willing to give true forgiveness. And if we don't, we close off that tube of air. We close off that ability to exhale forgiveness and we close off the ability to inhale forgiveness. This is a window that separates us from Jesus. So does it make sense? I hope. So are there others? There are. There are so many others, and we could think about them. Fear would be a great one you could put in there, and we're not going to talk about that. Is it okay to be afraid? Sure. Is it okay for it to paralyze you? 
No, because it could keep you far away from Jesus. There's so many examples, anxieties you can talk about in here. There are a lot of other ones. Expectation was one I wanted to put there. But we didn't have enough window panes. (laughs) What do I mean by that? Well, God is this. Therefore, I can expect him to do this for me this way. And when he doesn't, I get angry with God. It's God's fault, and I fall out the window. And maybe it's not that God is wrong. Maybe it's just we put an expectation on God that he never intended to meet the way we wanted to meet it. Those are all examples, and there are others. But I'm sharing that with you this morning because we need to watch out for the windows because ultimately God wants us to be close to him, and he wants us to have a dynamic relationship with Jesus. As the worship team comes, we're going to close here in just a few moments. I want to read one scripture for you in John 6, verse 35. When Jesus says this, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who has faith in me will ever be thirsty. Think about that just for a moment. He's speaking about physical things, but he's really referring to spiritual things. He said, when you're hungry, you're going to eat. When you're thirsty, you're going to drink. When your body needs things, it's going to seek out food. And he said, you know what? When your spirit's hungry, it needs food. When your spirit's thirsty, it needs food. The bread of life comes by knowing Christ. The water that never lets you thirst again comes by knowing Jesus. And it's not just about knowing who he is. It's about being in relationship with him. He is the bread of life. He is the one who comes And when we drink from knowing him, we never thirst again. He continues to give us the sustaining power to be everything he's called us to be. So this morning, we're going to just pause as the church. And I just want to encourage you to take a few moments. Maybe just bow your head with me, please, just for a moment. And would you just ask yourself a couple of key questions and spend a few moments talking to the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit this morning, are there any windows that I've gotten too close to? Are there any windows that the enemy has used to draw me further away from Jesus? Or are there any windows that I've fallen out of? Can I tell you this morning, and this is the most beautiful part, I think, of this whole story. Think about this. If, if you ask the Holy Spirit those questions, He will reveal things into our lives. He will speak truths into our lives. But here's the most beautiful part about it. Eutychus fell out of the window and he died. And then Paul went to him and through the power of Christ, he raised him back to life. And I'm saying that to you because if you fell out of a window this morning, Jesus has resurrection power. There is always hope for all of us even though we are dead, even though we feel we've distanced ourselves from God, even though we feel like it's been so long, how could we possibly get back to where we are? Even if the decisions we have made have caused scars that we can never see removed, Jesus can heal us. And the scars may be reminders of the times we've walked away from God, but he can restore us and make us fresh and make us new. That's resurrection power when we make Jesus the center of our lives. So I want to pray for you. And as the team sings, you're welcome to join us.
Father, we just come before you today and I pray for each person that's here today. God, I pray the windows of their lives, that the enemy is looking, not just the windows that are good, but the windows that the enemy wants them to look out of to draw them away from you would be revealed to each one of us today. And God, if we've fallen out of some of these windows and we've stumbled and we feel dead inside because of those things, may we be reminded that in the same way you raised Eutychus to life, you can raise us back again as well. But there is always hope through our risen Savior. As we sang earlier this morning, oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Sing hallelujah, Christ is risen. God, you are the one that breathes life into each one of us. Will you come today and make us again, make you the center of our lives?